Well, if you already closed your Bible, it's page 1008. Page 1008. Uh, be helpful to have that with you. Uh, also, in the white bulletin that you received as you came in, in the center of that, there is an uh, outline of the sermon. It would be helpful to have that as well. So page 1008, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 onwards. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you that you've been speaking to us as this Word has been read and sung. And we pray now, Lord, that uh, as we come to consider this passage, uh, that your Spirit will be working among us. May he give me the strength to uh, preach it rightly, faithfully, in his power. May he work in each one of our hearts and pointing us to Jesus helping us to appreciate him more and more and to follow him as his disciples. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to be someone great? Do you want to do something of importance with your life? Do you want to be someone who is judged at the end of the day to have lived your life in a significant way? Do you want to be great? Many Christians think that it is wrong to want to be great. But that's not what Jesus says in this passage, because if we look very carefully at it, we will realize he's not saying that we shouldn't be great. What he is saying is that we need to change our perceptions of what greatness is. And we will see that true greatness comes in humble, sacrificial service for the eternal salvation of others. Now, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Andrew. I hear you say, I'm getting a sense of deja vu here. Haven't we done something like this before? And the answer is yes. Jesus taught us some very similar things just a few weeks ago when we looked at Mark chapter 9 verse 30 to 37, but, but, but Jesus' disciples seem to have forgotten the lesson or failed to apply it, and so he has to teach them again, and, and that might well be the same for us. The Holy Spirit might well be seeking to drum this lesson into us again from a different angle. So let's persist at looking at this passage together and see what Jesus is teaching us here. The passage opens with Jesus and his disciples once again on the road, they are heading for Jerusalem where Jesus will eventually be killed and rise again. And as they walk towards Jerusalem, Jesus is, in verse 32, walking ahead. And so we've got this picture of Jesus leading the way and the disciples and, and, and others, they're, they're following him. It's a, it's a picture of discipleship, isn't it? Jesus, the great one, heading for suffering and then glory, and his disciples walking behind him in his footsteps. But look at the emotions that are going through the disciples in verse 32. Find, you find those two words that describe their emotions in there. Can you see that? The first word there is amazed, and the second word is afraid. 
they were amazed and afraid. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the city where the great king would reign. And they've already worked out that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen promised king. (coughs) So isn't it amazing that here they are with the Messiah, heading up to Jerusalem to take up his throne? Wouldn't wouldn't it have been absolutely amazing to be one of the people swept up with him in this, this watershed point in world history? Imagine, you know, one of Obama's key people through his presidential campaign a few years ago, and now you've won, you're heading up to, to, to Washington for the inauguration together with him. This is much bigger than that. But on the other hand, it's also scary because Jesus didn't just win an election. There's no constitutional framework that says the leaders in Jerusalem should hand over power to him. In fact, the chief priests and the scribes and the entire Jewish leadership are bitterly opposed to Jesus. And the Romans, well, they wouldn't tolerate a new king. They'd crushed many pretenders to the Messianic throne before. Their reaction this time would be no different if Jesus were to try to become king by force. No wonder they are afraid. But in spite of their fear, they still follow Jesus. They were convinced that that, that he is the Messiah, and so they trust him. He, He must have a plan. And so with minds full of amazement and fear, they walked behind him on that road to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, Jesus stops. And he talks to his 12 disciples. He tells them the plan. This is the third time he's telling them in Mark's records. He may well have told them more times than this, but they don't seem to be getting it. Verse 33, he says, look what he says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the the, the greatest one, the one God said back in the Old Testament in Daniel 7, is going to be the one who rule all the world and people from every language and nation will, will worship him or serve him. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, When God's people were delivered over to the Gentiles or to the nations, they would suffer under the judgment of God. And that's what's going to happen to Jesus. He will be delivered to the Gentiles, verse 34, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's the plan. That's how Jesus is going to become king. Jesus, God's great king, will enter his kingdom by suffering. Somewhere around this time, and we're in point three of your outline, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of Jesus' disciples, come to him with a request. They say, verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, 
Let me give you a tip. Never say yes to a request before you know what it is. Uh, earlier on in Mark's gospel, King Herod had promised his stepdaughter to give her whatever she asked, and, well, he got snookered into killing John the Baptist, didn't he? But Jesus is not only the great king, he's also the wise king. And so he says to James and John in verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? Next week, we will hear Jesus ask the exact same question to a blind man, and then he, he, he will actually grant his request. But he's not going to do it for these two because, well, here's what they request. Verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, in our culture, if there is a VVIP, the one on his right and the one on his left are who? The bodyguards, isn't it? But for them, it's his number two and number three. Right, and so they're asking Jesus, when the kingdom comes, when you reign as king, can we be number two and number three, please? And how does Jesus respond? Oh, he says, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. Because remember, for Jesus, the path to glory goes through suffering. And in asking to, to be on his right or on his left, you, you know what they're really asking? The next time Mark uses those terms, one on his right, one on his left, he's referring to those who were crucified with Jesus. And Jesus shows this to them by asking them, verse 38 again, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able to suffer with me? And they say to him, we are. We are able. Now at this point, Jesus could well have said, no, actually you can't. And that would have been true. They, they won't make it to the cross. But Jesus looks beyond that. And he concedes that there would come a time much later after his resurrection, when they would indeed suffer for him. And he says, verse 39, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Yes, James and John, Jesus says, you will suffer with me. And yes, you will be glorified with me in the end, but what place you will have in glory, whether you're number two or number three or number 500,471,931, it's not even up to me. The Father knows, the Father chooses, the Father determines. Now, if you were one of the disciples and you heard that James and John had put in a special request to be number two and number three, how would you feel? I think I'd be a little bit mad with them because actually I wanted to be number two. I just didn't want to say. Well, the rest of them, verse 41, were indignant with James and John. 
And Jesus has to teach them a lesson. He calls them to himself, and he speaks to them in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That, that's normal, isn't it? In the world, if you're the ruler, then those who are under you are there to serve you, do, to do what you want them to do, that, and you make them do it. That's just, that's just how it works. But Jesus says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Because the kingdom is different from the world. In the world, being great means having position, and having position means other people serve you. But in the kingdom, it's different. Jesus says in verse 43, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, he's not saying we shouldn't strive to be great, but he is changing our perception of what makes someone great. What makes you great is not the title or the authority or the fact that you can tell other people what to do. What makes you great is that you humbly serve. And the greatest one, of course, is Jesus. For the greatest service was the sacrificial giving of his life for our eternal salvation. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, to pay a ransom is to, to pay a price, usually a very high price, to, to liberate someone or something. And Jesus was going to pay a price to rescue his people. And that price was his sacrificial death on the cross. He would pay the penalty of our sin. He would suffer under the, the just and, and rightful wrath of God on our behalf. He would drink that cup for us. He would take our punishment in our place. Yes, on the one hand, he would indeed be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles who will, who will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. But actually, he would give his life. Jesus was going to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus would become king by first serving his people in the biggest possible way by purchasing us with his very own blood. What makes Jesus great? Remember the Philippians 2 passage which we read and then sung? It was his humble, sacrificial service, even to the point of death on the cross, for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people. The great king would enter his kingdom by serving all his people, by giving his life for theirs. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many.
Now, if for Jesus, greatness came from humble, sacrificial service for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people, then as disciples of Jesus, that's how we should seek to be great as well, shouldn't we? We should seek to humbly and sacrificially work for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people. And any good work that we humbly do, even if it's giving a cup of cold water to someone who's going about preaching the gospel, that will be rewarded. That's, that's what Jesus says. And that's sometimes a paradigm shift for us, isn't it? Because the world teaches that greatness lies in our wealth, in our education, in our standing in society, in our place in the hierarchy, whether it's in the company or in the club or in the church. The world teaches that greatness is measured by how many people there are to serve us. The world teaches that if you're great, you can boss people around and you can use them for your benefit. And Jesus says, no, that's not greatness in the kingdom. That's worldly greatness. Don't, don't pursue those things. Go for true greatness. What you and I need to keep asking is, what good work can I do in humble service for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people? What good work can I do in humble service for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people? Doing that is what makes you truly great. For doing that is what makes you like Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying that there cannot be leaders in church. In fact, script, the Scriptures value godly leadership. But what he is saying is that position and power do not make someone great. It's the humble service for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people that makes someone great. And those things seem to me to be running on different panes. And so it's possible to have position and power without the attitude of humble service. It's possible to have the attitude of humble service without position and power. It's possible to have neither. It's possible to have both at the same time. Let me elaborate. We can have the position and power without the attitude of humble sacrificial service. And if that happens, we're no different from the world. It shall not be so among you, Jesus said. On the other hand, we can have the attitude of humble service without the position and power. And that's fine because it's the humble service that counts for true greatness, not the position and power. It may be that tonight you read a Bible story to your children or grandchildren, or nephews, or nieces. No positional power associated with that. But that is truly great and has value for eternity. It may be that one night this week you stay at home to look after the kids so that your spouse can go to Bible study. No position there but it's the humble service of Jesus for the sake of the salvation of others. That makes you great. It may be that tomorrow you finally summon up the courage to talk to your non-Christian neighbor about the gospel and invite them to guest night. No power gained, but boy, that was really sacrificially serving them. 
And that's greatness in the eyes of Jesus. There are people in our congregations who have cut their working hours, changed their jobs, chosen to be single-income family so that they can give more money to ministry, more time to ministry. No title comes with that. But God sees humble, sacrificial service for the sake of the salvation of others, and that is greatness. Some of you visit people in Shell Home or Cozy Home or Cheshire Home to, to bring the gospel to them and to encourage their fellow believers. That There's no power or prestige there. But you are humbly, lovingly, and sacrificially serving these people for the sake of their eternal salvation. And you are great. You may be someone who is faithfully praying every day for the work of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. No one even knows, but you work hard for the sake of those for whom you pray. And that is greatness. You may be someone who gives money sacrificially for the work of the gospel among us. No one even knows what you contribute, but you do it as a matter of serving so the gospel will go out from here for the eternal salvation of others. And that makes you great. You see, you can have the attitude of humble service without the position and power. The hard thing here is remembering that this is true greatness when the rest of the world doesn't see it for what it is. On the other hand, you can have both at the same time. There will be people who have position and power, but use them with an attitude of humble service for the sake of the kingdom, for the eternal salvation of others. The hard thing here is that you have to guard your heart against the illusion that's the position and power that are significant when actually it's your humble service of others. You are really great, not because people know you as the best Sunday school teacher in St. Mary's, but because you work hard to love your kids and teach them about Jesus. You are really great, not because you're the chairman of a ministry or auxiliary body or the leader of a small group, but because you humbly use that role to love and serve others and point them to Jesus for the sake of their salvation. You are really great, not because you're a member of the council or one of its supporting committees, but because you faithfully use that position to maintain our structures to promote the gospel for the sake of the eternal salvation of God's people. You are really great, not because you're known as Reverend so-and-so or Pastor so-and-so, but because you humbly labor to help the people in your care grow in Christ and live godly lives. What makes you great, whatever the other things, is the humble, sacrificial service for the salvation of others. So you want to be someone great? You want to do something of importance with your life? You want to be someone who is judged by God at the end of the day to have lived your life in a significant way? Well, you and I are disciples of Jesus. And he teaches us what true greatness is.
find ways to humbly, sacrificially serve like Jesus for the sake of the eternal salvation of others. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus indeed came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. We thank you that we as your people have become the beneficiaries of this humble sacrificial service, this death on the cross for the sake of our eternal salvation. Father, as his disciples, we pray that you help us to think of greatness his way. Will you please continue to transform our thinking so that we think the way he thinks rather than the way the world thinks? Father, we confess that it's so easy to to fall into the world's way of thinking because it's, we're bombarded with it all the time. We thank you for the reminder from your word today about true greatness. Please keep reminding us and please help us to keep reminding each other. And may we find true greatness in humble, sacrificial service for the eternal salvation of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.